Welcome to the AFIRE podcast. Six months ago, AFIRE hosted our usual winter meeting in New York City just weeks before the U.S. essentially locked down to protect us all from COVID-19. So much has changed since then. I've, I've asked one of our speakers from that meeting, P. Allen Smith, to speak with me again today. He has a wide range of interests and experiences. He's a television host. He's a garden designer, conservationist and more importantly, an innovative developer that approaches community building in a new, old way. Whether he's talking about SIP construction, gardens, or the meaning of life, Alan can help us all make sense of this uncertain world. So thank you, Alan, for joining me on the A-Fire podcast. Gunnar, it's a pleasure. It's uh, it's been a lot of a lot has changed since we were together in February of 2020. Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. So much has changed, and yet during our discussion in February at the uh, annual meeting, there were so many ideas and predictions that were made that actually in some ways were prescient. And I think as we reflect back on what was said and the people that spoke in February and and the messages they had, and you included, it was really almost as if you knew what was going to happen. Of course, we didn't. But it, it, it so many of the things there, I think, apply more today than they ever did before. Just let's start kind of broadly and and think about it from the standpoint of certainly we're going through COVID-19. We're about six months into it. A lot of things obviously have changed in the near term. But I'd I'd love to get your thoughts in terms of how our lives um, and the definition of normal will be forever altered after this crisis is over. What do you think? Well, I think that um, everybody has um, really reached back to a simpler time, I think, um, for the most part. I, I do want to pick up on what you you said about the where where we were in February, and um, I really feel like that COVID and uh, so much of the social unrest really just accelerated what was beginning to occur in the marketplace anyway. Much of what we talked about in in February, and and so many of the other speakers in February, um, this this move uh, away from. Uh, densely populated areas. And I think I think COVID and the social unrest has just fueled it. You talk a lot about that uh, around, the, you know, the case for exurban living. Can you expand on that? The idea of, you know, certainly everyone's talking about in, in some ways they are voting with their feet and they are moving out to less populated areas. What do you think the kind of overall case other than, gee, I want to be away from uh, the potential of being infected, but from the standpoint of a long-term case, what is it about exurban living that makes sense? Well, I think that if if one can connect to community, it makes a huge difference. And to me, that's that's one of the uh, the big cases for it. And that's what we're seeing is lots of uh, people of all all ages really are looking for for community. And this was uh, something we talked quite a bit about back in February. And I think the the we're seeing it with the designs of the communities we're creating. 
Um, we, we find that walkability is huge. Um, if you, and, and also being able to, to stop in and, and, and see a, a neighbor in the, in, in the post office or have a glass of wine in the wine bar or whatever in, in the neighborhood was real, this true community and connectivity. Um, I think that's what, that's, I think that's what we all long for. Well, it's one of the reasons why some of these older urban neighborhoods have done so well in the last 20 years, it seems to me, are those ideas of, of walkability and having community in the sense of connecting to people. Well, one of the things I find interesting, and you showed us a few of uh, some of the work that you've been doing and some of the projects you've been doing, there seems to be this baked in uh, paradox in that you talk about exurban areas and yet there seems to be a, a relatively high level of density within these areas in order to accommodate this walkability in this community. Can you kind of expand on that? Well, I do think that you have to certainly have the have the population to make community work. Uh, but the, the the designs that we're about are are really um, density, um, and and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, we think that it it makes uh, for social interaction. Um, it makes it more engaging, uh, and it also is a it's it's much easier on the planet. Um, this denser way of designing and creating communities, and the walkable part of it is is something we've missed for a long time. Uh, you look at some of the earliest suburbs that were designed in Chicago and other larger cities by the Olmsted firm. Uh, they were very walkable, but the suburbs of today are soulless. Uh, you know, people drive uh, along streets that you could land a plane on. They pull into their garage and they never see their neighbor. And there are no sidewalks. This striking thing in February that that echoes uh, this idea that our environments have been built largely by utility, strip malls, excessive freeways, highways, soulless architecture, poor management of power and congested roads. I, yeah, the image of that, certainly we've all experienced where do we go from here? How do we how do we find a, a different way of looking at our built environment? Well, I think I think we have to to start with how we think about the way we want to live, and I think that's really one of the I guess silver linings of this whole COVID uh, world we live in now is that people are rethinking it and they want want to go back to simplicity. And uh, with that can be these communities that are, I think, uh, more thoughtful in the way that they're laid out. It, it's certainly driving our design ethos. And we've got about six projects underway. And what's driving them is really this sense of how do, how do we make it sticky for the residents? And how do we create a programmatic component as we work on the built environment. So it's, you know, it's, a community is more than sticks and bricks. And, and so designing um, interconnectivity into the DNA of these communities is terribly important. It happened naturally, you know, before the Second World War. After the Second World War, that's when things really began to run off the run off the, the rails. But um, to your point about the world we live in, Today, it is so driven by the automobile and um, these massive freeways that we have and uh, the congestion that we have. It's all driven by, by automobiles and these huge areas for parking and the need for wide roads and suburbs and things like that. It's really created a soulless, a soulless landscape. 
I've been noticing that people no longer use the term expressways when talking about freeways, <laughs> in great part because there's nothing express about them. No, there's nothing yeah, express about it. No, right. Quite the opposite in the cities that I've been in lately. It may seem counterintuitive to, to think about creating dense new town developments in, in the face of a pandemic when people are rushing away from the, the urban density. But as we design communities, there's that very important part of the garden or the landscape that allows people to get out and walk, uh, just step outside their door. And it's it's really part of the, the fabric that we try to weave with these communities where there's a lot of a lot of land left in conservation. Uh, we're underway with a conservation development at Moss Mountain Farm, and where about 35% of it will be left in conservation. And the, the density uh, is, is really around a little ham, hamlets, uh, like, not unlike an English village. So it allows people to, to step out onto the village green or walk across and see the sheep grazing in a pasture or walk down to the poultry barns and things like that or the gardens. Certainly architecture and design can get very, very complicated, but you use the term dial back to simplicity. Can you expand on that? Well, I, th I think that um, we history is a great teacher um, and we can go back to the past and see marvelous examples. Um, we spent uh, a couple of weeks just last year in England uh, looking at some of the most successful uh, villages and what really makes them work. Um, and that's that was a great lesson for us all on our team as we went around and looked at these and thought about them. Um, we we believe that architecture itself um, and the land plan is is an amenity in itself, um, and uh, the, the way in which this built environment comes together and and and, and creates harmony. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Uh, we're a great advocate of regional vernacular architecture. So the architecture can can have a great deal of simplicity and charm. Um, one of the things that's so interesting, I don't know if you've followed this uh, movement, but um, on Tumblr, the, the idea of what's, what's called uh, cottage core um, and um, this, this, this desire to go back to this um, you know, simpler time and <clears throat> small, charming architecture is very attractive to a wide range of people, but to particularly millennials. Speaking to the simplicity, when you think about older architecture or pre-mid-century, that it was an environment of pre-HVAC systems. It was an environment where you were trying to respond to, and, and this was craftsmen and regular people kind of saying, all right, how do I keep my home cool in the summer? How do I keep it warm in the winter? Um, th those are you know, central to what we're trying to figure out now when we talk about sustainability and, and, and building that way. Absolutely. Very passionate about this and about how place forms the way in which buildings uh, are created and, and, and leads design. In, in the work that we're doing presently, we are taking the, the local cultural fabric into consideration in what that architecture looks like. For instance, we're working on a little hamlet now where we're going back to the old-fashioned dog trot 
which had a wonderful sort of breezeway in between, perfect in this COVID world. Um, Also higher ceilings where it's warm in these parts of the, you know, in Georgia and Arkansas and the Carolinas. And the the idea of transoms and, and, and as well as sleeping porches. We have a marvelous large sleeping porch at Moss Mountain. It's probably the most uh, talked about room in the in the whole on the whole property. And so um, these old ideas we're sort of bringing back again. Um, you know, these are these are ideas that allowed us to exist in these in these climates long before there was um, AC, before Mr. Carrier came along with the air conditioner. Which uh, certainly, Mr. Carrier transformed our landscape, perhaps as much as the the, the push to uh, cars as a, a primary transportation and the, and the kind of spread out to the cities. I think it, it to a certain extent, I think it allowed for a level of growth in in the southern states uh, in the United States because of you know confronting the, the very hot summers. Well, it did um, absolutely. Air conditioning um, did did uh, foster growth. I think the automobile and and the air conditioning um, probably has influenced design uh, more than anything other than the, the suburbs themselves. Those are huge forces that ha- have altered our architecture and the way in which we create community. But at the same time, certainly from a sustainability standpoint, and we're, we're approaching some critical points uh, in terms of what's going on in the world from a, a global warming issues, from an issue of these things not being sustainable, um, how do we move forward uh, in terms of, you know, in, in a world where air conditioning and automobiles are actually creating as many problems as they are solving? Uh, where do you think this goes? Well, I'm going to go back to your question about the SIPS panels, which are the you know, the structural structurally insulated panels. Uh, they've been around for a long time. Frank Lloyd Wright used them. We actually have some pictures in our archives of him looking at panels, and um, it's it's just one way to get get to 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 begin to try to create a, less of a footprint on the planet that's damaging. What we're aspiring to do in our work is to get to zero energy, but but not not only zero energy with this form of construction, Gunner, uh, but also we're trying to get to as close to zero waste as we can, as well as thinking about the interior environment and the health. So the getting to zero red listed chemicals and the off gassing that occurs inside so many homes. The, the foam industry is virtually unregulated. And uh, so much of what's being built in this country today is, you know, it's built, of, it's, we call it stick built. Whereas I think panel construction brings a, a certain R value and it, it begins the conversation in a real way about how to conserve energy. And it also satisfies a lot of other problems uh, in terms of the efficiency, the time it takes to put up a house. For instance, we can put up a 1,600 square foot house in two days with four men, you see, in the dry. Some of the other advantages is that the the panels are insect resistant as well as mold and mildew resistant. A lot of people, when they talk about, you know, more sustainable construction practices and design, there's usually a kind of knee-jerk reaction saying, well, 
this is all fine and good, but the way that we've been doing it for years is proven um, and is efficient from the standpoint of it's 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 cheap, um, fast, um, and it's it's profitable. How does what you're doing go beyond just saying, "Gee, we're going to make the world a better place and and, and make our living uh, more pleasant"? How does it work from a profitability standpoint? In terms of profitability, we work we're working every day to demonstrate that our method of building is not only greener and better for the planet, but it actually is um, a, a, a better designed house for the long term, and it is really cost effective. You, you can't look at panel construction and compare it to, well, this is stick built, and we're just going to compare the, you know, the, the, the framing of a house to the panels of a house because it, it doesn't, it's really an apples and oranges comparison. Uh, what we have to get to is looking at the, the whole idea of the process of building um, and everything that goes into it and, and, and think about it in an integrated way. For instance, with panel design, even though the panels may be more expensive, sure, you can get them up sooner, which cuts down on labor. But beyond that, um, you you can really reduce your your HVAC costs and these um, uh, and, and the energy costs over time are are extraordinary. The savings in energy, I should say. So thinking more of a different time scale than just you know get this done, get it sold, get out, but maybe more of a sense of what is the value over time. That's right, and uh, particularly for folks who are in um, the rental business. Um, I think um, having longevity in the DNA of, of the construction is really important. And also energy savings is very important increasingly. And I think that's why this is very attractive. Spending a little bit more time, a little bit more thought, perhaps even a little bit more capital, although that's that's questionable in terms of how much more that might be at the near term, but seeing more of a long term profitability. Yeah, I think you do have to look at it across the you know, the, the, the long term for it to, to really pencil out. And fortunately, institutional investors by design are are obligated to think long term that their investors are looking for uh if not five to ten years even beyond 20 30 they're thinking multi-generationally because of their pensioners because of of, of the demands of their capital and and this is this is uh, pension capital from all over the world trying to figure out how to make investments that have consistent returns over time um, and that increase in value as time goes forward. Well, we're making the case every every day and we're getting much closer to it to demonstrate that um, if one takes a, a SIPs approach or a panel approach to building, that you, um, it, it actually is right from the start, um, less expensive. Um, and I think increasingly so as we move forward in time, because uh, it's just more challenging to get um, uh, skilled, uh, a skilled workforce on these, on these sites to, to build, whether you're doing, you know, custom homes or multifamily. What do you think institutional investors uh, should be aware of, be thinking about, looking for as they're making investments in, in, in a COVID and post-COVID world? They need to be looking toward, uh, you know, of course, the ESG uh, development components are, are terribly important and going to be more, more important going, going forward. But um, I, I think that having longevity in projects, I think that creating 
properties that that have connectivity to community that really uh, if they don't create community for themselves, they at least interface into the existing community. Um, I think that they that I would I would or what we're looking into is and in, in seeing great success is the is the, the 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 beauty of architecture and and how that attracts people. Uh, I mean, you want you want people you want if you're if you're an investor that it's focused on rentals, you want those you want you want to keep the absorption high. You want to keep you want the place to be sticky and you want people to hang around. And I, I don't think you have to have all these gadgets and amenities. Uh, everything is it's a, sort of an amenity of war, it seems like, at least in some of the markets I've seen with these multi-family um, apartment complexes, uh, each one trying to outdo the other. And that's why I think going back to something much more simple where people aren't living necessarily in these these big multifamily four-story apartment buildings, but they're broken into cottages and it becomes more of a village-like feel, uh, maybe around just a simple pond or or lake rather than all the bells and whistles they think they have to have. About 10 years ago, a, a multifamily developer, owner-operator that I know did a, an extensive research in this. I love the way you talk about amenity wars because it's very real. People are trying to compete with each other in terms of I have more amenities than others. And they asked the question of as many tenants as possible, as many people looking for apartments and homes what are the amenities that are most important to you? What are the things that really drive your decisions about where you live? And at the top of the list across the board was, I know someone else in the building. There you go. Yeah. It's that connection to another person. And, and it, you can, you can, uh, there are actual things one can do in the design process that can foster that kind of connectivity, that stickiness that I talk about. And that's what we long for in this world. Uh, we're, we're, we're disconnected. Um, and I think we want to reconnect. And that's such an important part of, um, of, of creating the fabric of place. Um, and I, that would be something I would really recommend that investors look look to in the future, because I think it 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 does the human population good. I think density cuts down on the cost of uh, infrastructure. Um, and it's better on the planet. I think all, all the way around, it's better for us. So speaking to our souls, it seems to be uh, the practical direction to go. Well, I think we do have to listen to our souls. Um, I think we've, we've not for a long time, and look where it's taken us. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I just, um, it's, it's tragic to me to drive through this country, and you'll drive down these strips of, uh, you know, the strip malls and, you know, all these various chains that you can see anywhere. You have no idea where you are. Uh, there's, there's a total loss of cultural identity mm -hmm. uh, with these communities. And you can be in a small, you know, a 30,000 uh, population community in Arkansas or Missouri or Illinois, and they look the same. Strikingly the same. Yeah, yeah. And and you, you can just see these strips, and they're just being abandoned now because of, you know, how retails moved from uh, brick and mortar to more online. And we've got these big gaps and holes along these strips, so they're just becoming even uh, more intolerable 
you paint an incredible picture of what we we can do and where we can go. What do you worry might stand in the way of us making the right choices? What are you afraid of? Well, I suppose the the thing that I'm afraid of is that our our um, as humans, we tend to always want to fall back on what we've done. Um, there's a we seem to be afraid of of trying something different, and really, what we're talking about is just going back to a simpler time and thinking about what worked then. Uh, but I, I think my greatest fear is that everybody will want, or not everybody, but for the most part, uh, it'll be status quo. Um, we've looked at COVID and what's going on. People ask me all the time. You know, is this going to be a, a sea change and will people be returning back to the cities or not? And uh, there is an urban exodus that's going on. Um, and, and to some degree, I think this happened in 1918, but people returned, returned to the cities. I think what might be different in this particular situation is that technology um, is allowing people to work virtually from wherever they like, um, more and more, more and more so. So, um, in, in this case, you know, there may be in, in 2020 people we, that we may see a, a, a change that actually, uh, remains that we do. We, we have set, we have hit the reset button and, and it, it will make a big change in, in the way in which people live their lives. You said back in February something striking where you said a new paradigm, what we're talking about in terms of change, isn't really new at all. It's looking around and asking what actually means something or is important to us. What do you, are you most hopeful for? If you were to say one thing, I want the world to do this, what would it be? Connect. We have to connect. We have to connect with one another. And part of that connection is to is to understand one another um, and respect one another uh, and to respect the planet. Um, so I think we we have to connect. We're so disconnected. Um, it's uh, we we do live in the atomic age. It's everything shattered. Media, everything. Was, we went from you know a few networks, what five uh, back you know, 40, 50 years ago. Then we moved to this period of cable where it went from, you know, 20, 40, 60, 80, 100, 300, 500 stations. And then it, it became even more atomic and more fractured with the, the online space and, and where we get our information. So I think uh, the remaining connected um, in a meaningful way is, is ter terribly important. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. This has been just a fascinating discussion, and uh, you, you've left me somewhat inspired and, and hopeful for the future. So thank you, Alan, for spending some time with us today. This podcast is produced by AFIRE, the Association for International Real Estate Investors focused on commercial property in the United States. AFIRE is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. None of the content is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information included in this podcast may have been obtained from third-party sources considered to be reliable, though AFIRE is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third-party information. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of its respective contributors and sources and do not necessarily reflect those of AFIRE.
This is Gunnar Branson from the A-Fire podcast. Thank you for listening.